Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Photographer Nicholas Kitto spent 12 years travelling around China, photographing the old treaty port architecture. The buildings include former consulates, custom houses still used today, banks, social clubs, railway stations, as well as smaller structures. The treaty ports were the port cities in China that were open to foreign trade largely by the unequal treaties forced on them by Western powers and operated from 1840 until 1943. The cities still have German architecture, French buildings, Russian churches and British designs. For Nick Kitto, there was also a personal connection as generations of his family had worked in China. The result was his book, Trading Places, a photographic journey through China's former treaty ports. It started way back in 1996 when I was visiting my father on my annual pilgrimage to the Isle of Man and, and we were having supper. And I mentioned to him that two weeks later I was going to be going with a client of mine, back then I was in the accounting profession, to Tianjin, where I knew he'd been born, but that's pretty much all I knew about our family's activities there. And he suddenly said, well, wouldn't it be a laugh if you found our old house? And uh, he then proceeded to draw a rough diagram which explained where the house was. Now, this is quite an amazing feat in itself because he was barely six, if that, when my grandfather's employers, the Asiatic Petroleum Company, moved the family to Hankou, or Hankou as it's now referred to. And so that the key thing was that it was on an apex of a racecourse road in Tianjin and at a point where two other roads join as a V in a V shape. He remembered that the front door was actually on the left-hand side of the house. So the step, you went in through the left-hand side up some stairs into the left-hand side and, and there were some old French windows that probably wouldn't have survived in the front of the house, in front of the garden. So we drove along Racecourse Road coming back from my client's uh, facility in the Tianjin Economic Development Area, I think is the, the correct name. And then we found an area that looked like a sort of chunk of London, uh, lots of British-style house residences and so on. And then we continued because we had a dinner appointment, and the dinner in itself was one of these extravagant banquets with the rounds, usual rounds of Mao Tai on top of beer and goodness knows what else, toasting this, that, and everything else. But at the end of the dinner, these things, as you know, end up end quite early. So the main team went back to the hotel bar and, and I set off with one of the client's executives to have a closer look around that area where we'd driven past. At the age of six, what decade would that have been? Uh, he's uh, been 1930-31. We stopped right by the house, in fact, because it was right on this, on where my father had described it and drawn his rough diagram. And sure enough, looking into the house, the steps went up the left-hand side and the front door was in the left-hand side and there were some still some rather tatty French windows on the front so early next morning I went back with my little pocket camera as it was in those days and photographed it sent the photos to my father who was jubilant said we are successful so he rewarded me the next year with another <laughs> another <laughs> challenge which was to find the country club. I was actually coincidentally going back with the same client the same time of the year, and so I had this photograph thrust into my hand and was told to find the country club, which we found entirely thanks to the hotel driver who knew exactly where it was. I mean, it wasn't difficult with hindsight. It wasn't difficult because 
the country club also had a race course and so all you really had to do was to go along race course road and go to the end and you'd find the country club and so we discovered that but then I had a few business trips to Beijing when I was there if I had time I nipped down to Tianjin just to, to have a look at the old family house you know <laughs> and the country club well, was it a nice connection for you though you oh, know knowing yes. where you, what your father was all about in his childhood and, and that side of your family what were they doing there well my, my grandfather had been recruited direct from his public school by Shell Shell Petroleum, Royal Dutch Shell. He was recruited as a management trainee and in those days those management trainees probably did about a year or so in London just to learn some basics about fuel and what have you and then they were shot off out to where one of Shell's places were. In those days, typically, I mean, of course, there was South America, but there were other locations, but the Far East, which is where their roots were, in, down in what is now Indonesia, was a, a popular spot. And my grandfather was allocated to Asiatic Petroleum Company North Limited. Now, Asiatic Petroleum Company was... Was Shell, or...? Was Shell, a yeah. wholly-owned subsidiary. They had two mm. companies in China, one North and one Asiatic Petroleum South. South, of course, was based in Hong Kong. North was based in Shanghai. North was responsible for everything along the Yangtze and above. So did he sell it or did he...? Well, yeah, he, he um, was selling kerosene, basically. He, he, he was there to sell, Shell was there to sell their fuel in great competition with what is now, well, now Exxon Mobil, but what was then Mobil. Ironically, my client was the mobile company that helped me find all these these things to begin with. I mean, it's just, they were friendly competitors anyway. So after that, I, I made a few visits myself to Tianjin, and I went to a wonderful tea dance on a Friday afternoon. It was amazing. In, in, in the country club, people were dressed up in all sorts of things. You know, some people had their best gear on, some people were in jeans and t-shirts, others, there was a very flamboyant couple with uh, dinner jackets and ballroom dresses, it was wonderful, it really was wonderful. And what was the sort of music? Oh, all tradition, all uh, western style classical music, I mean it was all classic ballroom dancing stuff. So waltzes? Yeah, waltzes and the like. Did you get up? Uh, I was an interested observer. <laughs> put it that way. But I actually went downstairs. Now, downstairs was all in darkness, but it was untouched. It was very dusty and dirty. I could just make out a signpost saying billiard room. That was 2002, January. 2004, my father and I, well, I brought my father out to stay in Tianjin with his very long-standing girlfriend. We went up to Tianjin, which is uh, just about two hours drive from Beijing. Uh, and that's it's a what, major port city these days. It is a it? huge yeah. port city, and it was probably the second, arguably the second largest treaty port in China in, in my father's day. We flew to Beijing, and the hotel sent a driver up, and we had a, a rather fun drive down in this rather rickety, high-ace Toyota vehicle. And uh, was this your father's first time back? Yeah, first time back since he left. He left in 1930. Uh, let me think. He was eight, so he left. He was sent off to boarding school with his older sister, and yeah, that's what they did. Oh, AJ. Yeah, well, it happened to me too for different reasons, but, <laughs> but um, it was his first trip back, and that evening when once we checked into the hotel, 
hotel, of course, we walked over to, to the house, which conveniently then was a bar. You know, we could just walk in and, and, and have a drink, albeit only for the downstairs area. And, it, I mean, I, I have slight tears in my eyes now thinking about it because it, it really was an amazing experience. For the first time in, in 75 years or whatever it was, he was going back to the house he'd first lived in, in China, before they moved to Hankow, where he was only there three years, Hankow being along the Yangtze River, before he was sent to boarding school. And he'd never been back since. He came to Hong Kong for one year to work with Jardines, but he couldn't stay here because he developed an allergy to, to heat, so he had to leave. And, but he'd never been back to the places on the mainland before. And the next day, uh, we went over to the country club, uh, and we had a Mandarin speaker with us, and we explained the family background and the caretaker once she understood that my father had been there as a child grabbed a huge set of keys and, and showed us around the whole building and I promise you Anne-Marie it hadn't been touched by then it hadn't been touched since it's been restored and it's now another is still a club beautifully restored on my side because I went around it again in 2014 I was able to see the billiard room the billiard tables were still there covered up but, and lots of bits of plaster and so on. There was the remains of the bowling alley, which is, has been restored and is still a bowling alley. And the indoor swimming pool, which now looks absolutely magnificent, was being used for storage. Typically, there was no water in it, and it was a sort of concrete base and, and being used in storage. But boy, that was really quite a trip. Yes, <laughs> yes. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure your dad was... Uh... I mean, it must have jogged his memory on a number of things. Yeah, well, he, he then, because what had happened, um, my grandmother, his mother, died very young, very suddenly, which broke my heart because I adored her. And no one knew anything about her family time in China. We knew a lot about the Kitto site. We knew, but we didn't know all the places. So when my grandmother uh, died my grandfather came to live with us for the last five years of his life and now uh, I once I got my driving license I, I used to um, drive him around for a bit of boat post qualification experience you know driving around the Isle of Man now I don't know what we talked about but I can assure you we didn't talk about his time in China I knew they'd been in China they had all the furniture in the house and lovely stuff no one knew anything about their time in China and I would later now I'm absolutely gobsmacked but to his credit my father proceeded to write down as much as possible because when we'd been in Tianjin together after the country club we walked around the old city center and there were just scores and scores of these western buildings where where did they come from okay we knew who was who was in them who used them for what purpose did they use them and so that's what got me interested and then I had my partner in crime Robert Neal who you'll has been on this program several times he was also interested he, he was much more ahead in the history and he had a lot of maps so Robert Neal was also a fellow accountant yes. uh, or worked at, yeah yes. uh, worked for an accountancy firm here he also had a yeah, deep interest in history and was the 
president of the Royal Asiatic Society, and together you collaborate in different ways. Robert Neald wrote two books about China's treaty ports and uh, looking at their history. Nicholas Kitto, who I'm talking to today, produced a beautiful photographic book called Trading Places, a photographic journey through China's former treaty ports. It's a lovely coffee table book that uh, really shows the exterior, interior, and for me, as we'll discuss, a few surprises here in terms of some of the architecture. And you and Robert really went on a, a oh. years-long quest Oh, it was a massive crusade. <laughs> we had to find out. I mean, I, Robert and I had visited just before I retired. I, we went up to Tianjin because I wanted to show him the family home and the country club and all, all my knowledgeable stuff. And our last supper there before we flew back to Hong Kong, we had decided that we would start looking into all these treaty ports. And Robert had already done a lot of work anyway. He needed no convincing, and I, by then... I'd done a lot of my own reading and everything, and I had my father's notes and so on. So, you, I mean, really, I mean, when we think of treaty ports, we think of, yeah, Tianjin, uh, we think of Shanghai, you know, the, these massive ones. But you're really finding also these outposts that have been long since forgotten. Yeah, that was our emphasis. Of course, we wanted to cover the big ones. We had to cover the big ones. But we really wanted to cover the ones that had not been covered or people did not know about. Uh, and that's precisely what we, we set out and did do. In trading places, obviously I've got a lot of photographs on Shanghai because there's some wonderful restorations. The restorations in Shanghai are staggeringly good. Uh, indeed, they're good all over the place. But I've cut it short because there are a lot of books on Shanghai already and it's well known. But I wanted to go to places like Wuhu. You know, what a name, Wuhu. It was Wuhu and it still is Wuhu and it actually had some important family implications but I only found out about that much, much later on. So where is Wuhu? Oh, it's along the Yangtze River, not, not far from Nanjing. What we would do, we sometimes did more than one in one visit. Sometimes when we had a car for more than two days, the, the, the driver really got into the project himself. One chap came on the second day with his own camera because he was quite excited, enthusiastic. He'd seen these buildings. All right, we couldn't speak much, much about them to him because of our language challenges, but he, nevertheless, he, he took his own photographs. But, and that was... Wherever we went, I should say now, is that we were warmly welcomed. We had no trouble whatsoever throughout our probably eight years of journeys. Now, what's interesting is if we look at, you know, trading places, obviously, treaty ports, gunboat diplomacy, quite a brutal history. But also when you look at your grandparents, they're ordinary people coming to work for a petroleum firm. So in terms of the architecture that's left behind, and when you consider communist revolution, 1949, then you've got communist history, cultural revolution, and, and all of these buildings, in one sense or another, have survived all of that. And these buildings also survived the war. Well, they, they survived the war, the civil war, and more interestingly, in many respects, is they survived the Cultural Revolution. Some of them got beaten up. A lot of the churches got beaten up. But again, since then, and particularly in the lead up to and after the 
Beijing Olympics that made a massive impact, I think, positive impact. Since then, all these restorations have taken place to a very, very high standard. You won't find any better examples. And some of them, there were some rebuilds. Our biggest challenge sometimes <laughs> was working out what was a rebuild because sometimes they would use part of the old building. Uh, there was a good example of a Butterfield and Soir office in Wuhu, which is along the Yangtze River. That we knew had been moved, and they do do that. Yeah, I, I saw that in the book, Trading Places, that they actually physically, you know, pretty much like the Murray Building going to Stanley, they, they actually brick and mortar, they, they do well, physically move it. Yeah, Murray Building's perhaps a bad example because they ended up with quite a lot of bits that they didn't know where, it, <laughs> where they came from. The examples I, I use in the book, uh, one in Beihai, the old port of Pakhoi, which is in Guangxi province, down, way down south. There the British consulate, the newer British consulate from about 1894, was on a bluff, and, and it was in the way of a dual carriageway. So they literally lifted it up, the whole building, put it on a rail, and moved it some 54, or I can't remember the exact distance, but they moved it a, a distance, and then put it back down again, unblemished, no, not a crack in the wall at all. That wasn't unusual. They would, rather than dismantle a building, they would just lift, lift it up and move it. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Uh, and there's more than one example. And sometimes they had to, not only did they move it, but they turned it round a bit so that it, it fitted better in the, the new location. As you went round mainland China looking at these various treaty port buildings, I was very interested to see in here a Russian church. It's got wonderful onion spires, or how would you say, onion turrets, but the exterior is beautifully restored. The interior had been left to its own devices with peeling paint, but beautiful kind of ceiling, former paintings almost, you know, but it was beautiful in its state of degradation. I mean, that's a wonderful example. Most places that we came across had been done up a lot inside, and of course we couldn't get into many of the buildings inside because they were occupied by current businesses. But that was a good example. That was in Harbin. That, that Russian Orthodox church is in Harbin, way up north. And that was one of the few examples where the exterior had been tidied up. Although its design is such that it's not easily to get scruffy because it's got multiple brickwork but inside it, it was just untouched it was as if well it had probably been left there since the, the as it was when it was first built and it was all the more better for it but what would a russian orthodox church be used it for today still a church it is still a church mm. there's some other examples of churches we were lucky with the Qingdao church in, or cathedral I should say, in, in Qingdao, Shandong, and also the Jinan Cathedral in Shandong, because both times Robert and I were looking wistfully through the gates, willing the gates to part, you know, come on, open these doors for us. And both occasions, the I'm, I'm going to call him the vicar or the pastor or the person in charge of the building happened to be walking by and came up and said, oh, would you like to have a look? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> oh, come on in then. And, and so that happened twice, both in Shandong province and, and also elsewhere. Normally we could get into churches, and they were still churches, 
Some of them had been beaten up in, in the Cultural Revolution, but the cathedral in Jinan hadn't because it was being used then as a, as a sandpaper factory. And so it kind of avoided the attention. And the most things that got damaged were the organs and the pipe work and, the, of course, the stained glass buildings. But all these buildings now have stained glass windows reinstated. You and Robert kneeled. What are you doing? You're going, all right, we'll go to, you know, May, we're going to hit Tianjin and, and Beihai, or I'm doing opposite ends of the country. But, you know, how did you set about systematically knowing how many treaty ports there were? Because some are just village little... There would have been a house on stilts originally. Well, the, the, there's very good records, uh, and there's a lot of authors that have written about treaty ports. We, we had a very good idea of the, the, the treaty ports uh, of all. I mean, there's, there's scores of them. Uh, people think of just the big ones, but there's scores of treaty ports. There's lots of ports of call and landing stations uh, and um, all sorts of different mixtures of, of types of foreign influence, if you like, in various locations. But and were these all these treaty ports? Are they all British, or are they different nationalities? No, not by far the dominant force were the British. But France was involved. The United States was involved. Um, Italy had one or two. Belgium even had one. But they they were all tended to be concession. You know, there was the British concession, the American concession, the French concession, and the Japanese concession in in, in ports by. Tianjin, again, I keep mentioning Tianjin, had the, the largest number of foreign concessions in one place, in one area. Uh, I think it was as many as nine. But others, I mean, Shanghai, there was the British and the American and, and the French. The British and the Americans amalgamated theirs and to become the international settlement, which the French were invited to join but decided not to. So there the were... Russia, for example, had its own ports and lost some of them to the Japanese in, in the, the War of 1904-1905. Uh, Germany was beginning to feel very left out, so they sort of conjured up a, an excuse to settle a treaty port in what became Qingdao. So there were other nationalities involved, but by far the dominant force were, were the British. But we, being former accountants, of course planned our trips in a very accounting sort of way, as one should do. We did our own independent research. As, I, as I've mentioned, Robert was much more advanced on knowledge, and he, most importantly, had a lot of maps of the old ports. So he obviously shared his maps with me. I would do my own research, you know, basically because I felt I, I ought to do some, you know, my own thing. But I was particularly interested in the building side, what yeah. buildings were likely to be there, because that was my role, to photograph the buildings, as many as we could find. His role was to write on the overall subject of the treaty port. Firstly, I should say that, that, that a night or two before we went, having done our own research, we'd compare our notes verbally, and we'd then fly over the city or cities on Google Earth with reference to the old maps to look for interesting roofs. You know, orange, orangey-red was the classic sort of colonial-style colour roof. Robert then put together a massive printout of Google Maps, and we, he plotted, he was the chief navigator, so he plotted the course we would take. And if I had any objections because of the light, 
uh, I could raise them. Just generally what I also enjoy about your photographs is you give them context. You don't try and um, just say, I'm just going to take the historical building with nothing else by it, which I rather enjoy. So Qingdao West Station, for example, you've got the old and the new, or newish, um, along the railway line. And uh, so I quite like that, that you are setting it in its modern context. Yeah, and, and you've also got, confusingly for us as well, a rebuild of the old that looks just like the old <laughs> that's part of the new. So it, it became quite interesting because this is just sums up how good they have been at, at keeping these buildings. It really is amazing when you consider the history. We, we have had and have a, a saying, once a custom house, always a custom house, because, of course, the custom houses were part of the imperial government and, and later, of course, remained with the government. So they were less affected although they were managed by expatriates, most famously Sir Robert Hart, and very many of the custom houses are still used as the custom house. One good example is the massive custom house in, in Hankow, um, which is still the custom house, as is the one in Shanghai. Some of them are no longer the custom houses, but they're still owned by the custom service, like, for example, the Guangzhou or Canton Custom House is a customs service museum uh, and that was beautifully restored as well. Ultimately with trading places what were you trying to tell us to, to look at your beautiful photographs? I'm not the first person to photograph the old treaty port buildings. A Shanghai-based photographer, Deke Er, along with an American lady, Auntie Tess, as we always called her, Tess Johnston, a former diplomat, They'd done it before, in, in the early 1990s, and they'd issued a lot of books. But basically in the run-up to the Olymp Olympics in 2008, there's been this massive transformation, not just in the Olympic host cities, but in other cities, where they were all starting to restore all these buildings to a very high standard. And my objective is, in the same way that Robert's second book, which is a a guide treaty port by treaty port to the history of that treaty port. So if you're going to, say, Beihai to choose a different city, you can read up in Robert's book about the history, detailed history, of Beihai. So you know the city you're going to. And that's exactly what I've done with my book, is the pictorial version of Robert's, which is to organise the buildings into, not into type of building, like you could have all consular buildings or, or things like that, but city by city. So it's sort of an unofficial accompaniment or sister publication to, to Robert's book in the sense that you can read about the history and you can see the photographs of the buildings that you should be able to find there. And most importantly, I want people to find them. So although I only have general maps in the book, there's a QR code at the back, <laughs> which I don't think many people bother with. But if you do bother with that, you'll go to a, a Dropbox folder and you'll get a, a Google Earth layer that you can import into Google Earth and you'll be able to see every single building that I've photographed exactly where it is on Google Earth so you can find it very easily. Because that's what I want. I, I, I mean, I want to show the buildings, but I want people once this COVID thing is out of the way, to people to be able to find them if they're interested in doing so. Through this quest, through your, your father's throwing down the gauntlet that you should be able to find this house, it's resulted in you really having an entire discovery 
of the generations going back in your family. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as I found out more throughout this period where Robert and I were going, it, I got more and more attached to these buildings. You know, I was just putting, stupidly putting my hand on the wall like some lunatic saying, come on, come on, tell me, tell me what happened here. I want to know. <laughs> and and uh, it, it slowly built up a whole thing. It's, it's been very interesting. It's very, very, per- very personal. Very personal. And I'm delighted to have discovered all of this. And even when I set out, all I had in mind, oh, look, I found my father's first house. To travel to and, and photograph all these treaty port buildings, how many years did that take you and Robert? Well, in, in total, I spent 12 years on the project. And as if you've read the inside cover, we, we did... 2,748,010 steps doing it. You're such accountant. <laughs> of course we are. <laughs> mm, that's, that's a lot of walking. Nick Kitto there, talking about the 12-year-long project, the results of which you can see in his book, Trading Places, a photographic journey through China's former treaty ports, published by Blacksmith Books. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.